Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I am Ed Reed, Africa editor. Alistair Thomas has reached the point in the month where he's about ready to tip the table over, set fire to the photocopier and walk out in a half. Yes, it's supplement week. Uh, but joining me uh, is uh, Hamish Penman, digital journalist, and Damon Evans, Asia editor. Morning, chaps. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thanks. How are you doing, Ed? Good. Yes, strong. You know, uh, we're all, I think, kind of working towards a holiday or coming back from holiday. So it feels very much like it's been a bit of a sort of a scrappy week. But Hamish, uh, thinking about uh, some progress, uh, things seem to be maybe moving forwards in the North Sea. Uh, yeah, so everyone's looking forward to uh, a bit of time away, a few holidays. I just came back from a couple of weeks off. Uh, I'm just looking forward to a, a nice relaxing start to the week. Uh, and then Shell approving Jackdaw dropped on my desk. So it was understandably furious that I had to you know, do my job. That was, that was rather galling at five o'clock in the afternoon. But anyway, uh, here we are. So there's two moving parts to, to this story. First, like I said, Shell has hit the investment button on Jackdaw. Uh, the North Sea gas field could be up and running around 2025. Peak production rate estimated at 40,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. Um, could account for around 6% of projected UK North Sea gas production. And it's hoped that it will be one of a number of projects that will, one, help to bring down household bills and two, will help to shore up energy security a wee bit. Um, now it will be tied back to the Shearwater Production Hub, so that will add a few more years onto the lifetime of that platform. And it comes with around half a billion or so of UK investment, um, that's what Shell has pledged to do in the past, so that will catch a few eyes, I'm sure. Uh, so Jackdaw has been touch and go for uh, much of the last year. The environmental statement was knocked back by Opred in uh, September, October, I think. Uh, that was in the run-up to COP26. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. We've had the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've had bills going through the roof. Um, and the UK government strategy has changed quite drastically. So now Jackdaw is, uh, was back in the race and it's now seems to be over the line. So Shell has allocated cash for it and uh, it looks to be a goer. So that's one half of it. Um, that was announced uh, late, late Monday afternoon. The next morning, uh, Greenpeace uh, announced it is going to be taking the UK government to court over its decision to, to rubber stamp the projects. Um, so whether Shell knew about this impending announcement and uh, therefore wanted to get get in first, um, I don't know, but it's very fit in time. And if not, um, so Greenpeace is claiming that the government didn't carry out the necessary checks before approving Jackdaw. And there's obviously this big and time sensitive energy security drive at the moment. And they are kind of therefore claiming that the damage to the environment hasn't been factored into the approval process. Uh, they also say it won't do anything to help to bring down gas bills because it'll go onto the international market. And this is at a point that has cropped up quite a lot in the last, well, certainly six months, if not a bit longer. Uh, it's one I don't particularly get because if the supply of gas to the international market increases, easing pressure on the demand side, kind of basic economics demands that the price will come down. The, the price of gas has, has been relatively low and stable in the UK for decades because it and it hasn't all come from the North Sea and it hasn't all been owned by the states. The UK has imported gas from the global market for years. So it would stand to reason that the price will come down if more gas is flowing. So anyway, ir irrelevant of the economics, it seems this will go to court. Not sure on timelines yet. These things do take time. Uh, and the lawyers will be over the moon, I'd imagine. So to come back on to whether 
the point of their appropriate checks have been made or not it is an interesting one because government is engaged in drawing up a climate checklist for future licensing rounds that kicked off at Christmas but we yet to see what it holds and, and whether Jackdaw would tick all the boxes of it so I imagine it probably would have done but there were reports earlier this year that Westminster was looking to relax, uh, relax its requirements in favour of energy security so uh, it looks like Greenpeace will have their day in courts, um, but it's unknown as of yet when that will be. I think they're still engaged uh, in an appeal over the protest at the Vorlick or at the Vorlick field. So they've got a a few to tick off that list before they get to this one. And and so in terms of uh, that sort of uh, startup of production from uh, from Jack, obviously talking about energy security, talking about gas prices, that feels like very much like a now issue. Obviously, kind of looking at looking at winter. Looking at how things are shaping up, when when do you think that uh, Jackdaw may come online? Uh, I think they're aiming for towards the end of 2025, which I, I might, it is a now issue, and it's very very likely that things will change a lot in the uh, just over three years between now and then. But I suppose the prospect of having this coming online um, is a, a welcome one for shoring up these supplies in itself, and also I mean three years to bring on a field that seems relatively quick yeah. in the grander scheme of things. I don't know, is that that's it's pretty sharp, is it? That that feels that feels competitive to me. I think the thing that 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 that, that uh picked my uh my attention was uh was 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 Greenpeace and the it was some sort of comparison with Ghana's emissions. Um what were they saying were they saying that, that Jack Dorr would emit the same as Ghana? I, I that was my understanding. So I think it's Jack Dorr across the across its lifespan will emit the same as Ghana in a year. Um, I presume that is the emissions the, the, the emissions from the gas being burnt rather than the, mm. the um, produ- production of it, um, which is, I don't know, how, how great are the emissions of Ghana in a year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it just feel, it feels like a very strange comparison to make. Uh, I mean, I suppose, I, I think, I mean, I guess maybe what I'm, well, the, the, I guess it's that problem of sort of trying to say over its entire lifespan, what are its emissions? How do we try and make sense of this in terms of, uh, you know, in in terms of in, in ways that people can understand? It just feels that uh, you know Ghana has a number of issues, uh, sporadic rolling blackouts. Yeah, uh, they've obviously got their own gas fields, uh, which are quite sizable. So I, I yeah, it, it feels um, I can sort of see what they're trying to do, but at the same time, it's it's uh, slightly infuriating. It's about <laughs> rubbing it in a bit to. To people from Ghana as well, if they are suffering sporadic blackouts and and complaining about this nice well, this source of energy that's going to be coming on stream, I don't know if it's a bit disingenuous as well because it is gas from Jackdaw will come ashore at St Fergus, where obviously the Acorn project is based, and that has a big blue hydrogen element to it. And there have been suggestions that gas from Jackdaw could be used to create blue hydrogen, and then obviously the emissions would be offset through carbon capture and storage. So it's likely that the emissions will be slightly lower than that. And also production from the field is going to account from, uh, for I think it's less than 1% of UK North Sea emissions um, in 2025. So in that regard, it's going to be a very, very small um, part of the UK North Sea emissions portfolio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm sure it's going to be uh, another another one to to add to the list of, uh, of of environmental legal actions. I think I think Hamish, we're gonna we're gonna leave it there for now, uh, and, and and next up we're gonna move to to, to Damon, who's also got some uh, energy mix uh, news to share with us. 
As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Damon, uh, looking at uh, the, the the sort of what what, what maybe in uh, Asia's future, it looks a bit different to uh, what we what we may be seeing in Europe. Yeah, so I've I've just been in um, a conference, Power and Renewables Conference, organised by Wood Mackenzie yesterday and today. And the, the, what, what really caught my attention was that coal is going to play a major role in the, the energy transition in Asia-Pacific, or, or that is what Wood Mackenzie is suggesting, uh, particularly as natural gas struggles to compete on price. Um, and so this is kind of opposite to what we've seen in the US and the EU, where um, natural gas plus renewables has been the path in the energy transition. Um, and... Coal, so coal looks to be a big thing, a big big trend in Asia. Obviously, um, 85% of fo- fossil fuel power generation is supplied by coal in Asia Pacific already. And uh, the high cost of natural gas compared to coal and renewable energy, which are relatively cheaper, is making it challenging for gas. Uh, China and India are approving more coal-fired power than gas fuel plants. And... Um, but but nevertheless, um, the region remains the world's biggest market for renewable energy investment. Uh, wind and solar make up 11% of power demand in the region currently. And Wood Mackenzie reckons that's going to rise to 50% by 2050. And, and Wood Mac also reckons there's gonna, we, they're going to need $2.9 trillion investment in power generation over the next decade to meet the, the surge in demand for power in this part of the world. The bulk of that is in China, 67%, uh, followed by Japan, 10% of that investment. And third place, India, is looking for 8% of that investment. Now, if we break that figure down, that $2.9 trillion investment by the, the technology or the energy source, would Mac estimating solar will attract 28% of the investment? Wind gets 32%, followed by nuclear on 12%. Then we have hydro 9%, coal on 8%, and natural gas on 7%. And battery storage relatively low on 2%. Uh, The offshore wind market remains the biggest growth market in the region, particularly in China, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, Offshore wind is fiercely competitive with natural gas on price. And um, and Woodmac reckons the offshore wind market is worth 400 billion in Asia, so so plenty of opportunities there. Um, what I also found interesting was the talk of nuclear power making a renaissance. Um, not surprising, given its stable and competitive costs compared to natural gas. And as the the analysts or speakers at this conference highlighted, it's low carbon, clean, and has stable cost basis. Uh, nuclear currently makes uh, makes up five percent of power demand in 
Asia Pacific, and that's forecast to hit 8% by 2030, although there is significant risk to the upside, reckons Woodmac on that. And another interesting point that came up was a lot of some of the power demand from Europe is moving to Asia as the energy crisis in, in Europe makes manufacturing industry less competitive. And so that is moving to places like Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, China, where there's a good domestic coal uh, supply and perhaps lower energy costs. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Although Asia Pacific is not immune to rising costs and the global energy crisis, uh, power generation costs are up 66% or $650 billion this year. Um, and Woodmac reckons high coal, natural gas and power prices will be sustained till 2026 uh, with limited supply response on the horizon. So going back to Jackdaw, I think Jackdaw's pretty, pretty much needed Greenpeace. <laughs> but, uh, we, we won't go back into that again. Um, yeah, so some interesting nuggets. And an another interesting thing, well, interesting to me, um, today the, at the conference, they were talking about how China's going to export $100 billion worth in renewable energy technology this year. Um, that's solar modules, wind turbines, and energy storage equipment. Although, I should correct myself, wind turbines, not so much. It's more solar equipment and energy storage equipment. And... Um, they're able to be quite competitive because of the huge renewable energy market and demand for equipment within China itself. And obviously they have a, don't shoot me, but a kind of pragmatic energy policy. So they're able to keep costs down. And obviously they have kind of very low labor. I mean, we could argue it's slave labor. I probably don't want to go there, but, but I was reading an article about Germany's energy policy just before the show. And, and I kind of, you know, you know, it's kind of quite opposite to what China's doing. Damon was never seen again. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the, the sort of surprising thing I think there there is about the coal, right? And I suppose, you know, looking at sort of future commitments, looking, you know, sort of net zero commitments, looking at sort of, you know, Paris targets, things like that. Do you think that uh, are they, they going to invest massively in sort of CCS or is it, or is it just going to be, we're just going to burn all the coal and probably see temperatures rise beyond you know what, what we were hoping well i think china are doing ccs i think they have asia's first ccus project um so they're definitely in and, and i suppose the other point i should make to be fair china are committed to getting peak emissions by 2030 and carbon neutral by 2050 and this is part of a you know they're going to push nuclear they're going to they're pushing renewable energy uh, aside from the 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 lower emissions side of it for the energy security they've and and that's seen electric vehicles um, supported in China. Twenty percent of um, new vehicles sold are, are EVs, and and that has seen uh, oil imports reduce. So I think for China, from the energy security perspective, renewable energy is they're, they're pushing that really hard. Nuclear is being pushed hard. Um, coal. Is being pushed hard now because they have the domestic resource, mm. and that's lowering the cost of the overall transition, and 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 that makes sense for them. Um, India, I'm not sure about. I don't I don't know of any CCS projects in India. I could be wrong. Um, obviously, if India is going to burn a lot more coal and not as much natural gas as as people were hoping, as they 
shift to renewable energy, then then that could be concerning for for the emissions. Sure, sure, sure. And I suppose it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think so. China is pretty much in uh, at the peak in terms of its population, isn't it? And I think India is going to overtake it in the next kind of couple of years, if, as far as I remember correctly. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. And I think. Um, in you know india's like the next big growth market for energy in, in this part of the world i think they're going to take overtake china as the biggest you know see the biggest demand growth from any major market for for oil imports in the future uh, i think the very near future um they they were looking to be a big lng importer but i think they're quite cost a price sensitive market so given given the situation in global gas markets i'm not sure that that still holds, and perhaps that's why coal is looking attractive. But there, there's also a big push for renewable energy in in India, and I think I think I think the the the, the carbon neutral targets are a lot less ambitious in India at the moment. I've, you know, maybe a bit further out than 2050 and what what China has pledged and and um, the Western countries. And, and and I suppose the other interesting thing there that you mentioned, or a number of interesting things, I should say, but the, about uh, sort of Chinese uh, renewable energy exports. And I suppose, you know, obviously in the last sort of year or so, we've seen costs rise for, for, for solar PV, haven't we? And I think that's proved to be something a bit of a, something of a, of a sort of a dampener on the sector and and i suppose you know the idea if if they can uh, if china can ramp up that uh, that 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 those volumes uh, and and also of course battery storage i mean i think you know china controls something like 80% of is it uh, lithium refining cobalt refining in the world so in terms of sort of uh, being able to you know build those sort of battery precursors and sort of batteries it looks like it's going to be a sort of a Chinese world. So I think that's, that's going to be a, a very interesting point. I think we, we might we might leave it there. But I, I am going to say that um, we are doing a tracking transition event on CCUS focused on Asia, which I believe is at the end of August. So if you are interested in CCUS in Asia, please uh, have a look at the website, sign up. I'm sure it'll be a great session. But for now, we're going to, we're going to put this on pause and I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about South Africa and its power plans. Energy Voice presents Future Offshore, a free hybrid event at the Chester Hotel Aberdeen on Thursday the 25th of August 2022. As the transition gathers pace, join me, Alistair Thomas, and the industry leaders to shape the offshore agenda for the North Sea, ahead of ONS 2022 in Stavanger. The event will feature three sessions. The first is on energy security. The energy industry must meet critical production targets whilst making the transition. As a tough winter approaches, what are the options? Session 2 looks at the North Sea as an energy transition frontier, exploring decarbonisation in the UKCS and Norway, where are comparisons appropriate and what can each learn from the other. Finally, Session 3 tackles the skills transition, what steps are required to reach the jobs and investment levels to ensure longevity of the offshore industry. In-person tickets are limited, but whether you want to join us virtually or physically at the Chester Hotel on 25th of August 2022, you can register free at future-offshore.co.uk. Fantastic. And uh, my favourite part of the show, and I'm sure yours too, the part where I get to talk a lot about uh, things of interest to me. <laughs> so so this week, uh, we saw some quite interesting uh, moves in South Africa, where 
obviously the, the the power sector has really struggled for some years and it's, and it's been getting worse uh i think you know earlier this month uh they entered stage six load shedding um so there were sort of you know rolling planned power outages across the country um and as you can imagine this is uh terrible for people at home trying to live their lives but also of course bad for industry and and any for sort of manufacturing base or, or, or hopes for a better economy, which in a country where unemployment is around 40%, clearly it's much needed. Um, so so obviously this is a cause for concern for the government and has been for some time. Um, but uh, this week, uh, President Ramaphosa finally came out and after you know promising that he would, he would get on top of the issue for some time, has come out with a plan um, which might just, you know, might just do it if they can actually go through with, with some of the proposed uh, suggestions. So there, there, there are sort of a number of parts. So I think just, just to rattle through them quickly, it's improving maintenance at existing power plants, um, allowing the state-owned uh, power utility ESCOM to buy power from, from IPPs, from foreign countries, from mobile generators. They're doubling a, 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 a sort of a renewables window that is currently underway. They're going to increase the amount that they're looking for to 5,200 megawatts. They're removing limits on embedded generation up until about last year. I think it had embedded generation had only been allowed to generate one megawatt. Then they increased it to 100 megawatts. And now they have totally taken off the, uh, the limits on that entirely. Uh, they're going to provide feed-in tariffs for solar so people can put solar panels on their roofs. Obviously, they'll be glad to hear that uh, that, that China is going to be uh, upping its game in terms of uh, solar PV modules, as I'm sure that will play a part. And, and then they're also going to launch a crisis committee to try and uh, provide some sort of an oversight to uh, how this, this, this big response is. And it's got to be said, right? I think you know the, the 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 response has generally been positive. So the opposition came out and said this is exactly the sort of uh, power plan that we would have come up with. Um, Greenpeace came out and said that they were keen on uh, feed-in tariffs for solar. They warned against obviously you know the sort of locking in uh, fossil fuel hydrocarbon you know power-based generation. But but in general, it was a sort of fairly uh, positive uh, note. I think I think the 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 one the one you know kind of uh, slightly sour note that the uh, the Democratic Alliance the the opposition party mentioned was this kind of crisis committee, which I think really kind of you know kind of you know really speaks to the to the heart of the problem that that the uh, the South African power sector has, and 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 the the DA said. Um, you know, who's going to be on this crisis committee, essentially? Is it going to be the same people who have been in control for some time, uh, who have clearly, you know, not been able to take any steps to, to, to tackle this problem before? So that, I think, is, is a fair question. And I think that uh, also speaks to the, the kind of the broader question of, um, you know, obviously, the ANC has been in power for, well, 20 years, I suppose, since, since apartheid fell. They've had all this time. They, they've, you know, obviously had various opportunities to tackle uh, shortcomings in the power sector. Is this time going to be any different? I mean, obviously, one would hope so, right? I think, you know, there's clearly demand for change, and and it would be transformative. I think, you know, upping uh, if 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 ESCOM could actually, uh, you know, provide the capacity that they nominally have then that would be uh, an incredibly strong start but uh, obviously that's a problem so 
the idea that they can kind of bring in private generation in varying varying ways is a really interesting idea and much needed. But uh, one suspects that the uh, the big man at the top may have set out his plan, but obviously the devil is going to be in the details and indeed in the execution. So what's South Africa's unemployment rate is at what percentage was that? Sorry. So it's about it's about 40%, I think. I mean obviously there's Jeez. kind of a kind of like an unofficial uh numbers and 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 the, that number is kind of uh, a bit unclear, but it's it's incredibly high. That's absolutely staggering. So I mean it's, it's, these power reforms are just desperately needed. I mean, is this going to open the floodgates for renewables in South Africa? How much is there already? And and, and is there the, the supply chain and the, the industry offshore bit, offshore wind bit, solar there at the moment to to support this this growth that it clearly so desperately needs? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. And I think that there is like an interesting uh, sort of a link there, isn't there, between uh, between jobs and, and, and sort of, you know, renewable energy, which I think obviously everyone would be would be keen to see. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there have been a number of these sort of, they're, they're called bid windows in the past. I think so bid window five closed earlier this year. But I, I think... I, as far as I know, that that bid window five has still not reached financial close, so the the projects are not yet moving ahead. So I think there is still a question around. There's a sort of a, a, a disconnect, isn't there, between the idea and the execution, which I think is kind of where we kind of uh, started at, and, and and I think that's very much the challenge. But I mean, there, there that's so there is there is clearly opportunity. I mean, I think there is there's there's there's, there's the winds, there's solar. There's, uh, you know, potentially geothermal. Um, so there, there, there is potential, and there, and we have seen a lot of interest in these in these renewable bid windows. So a lot of companies are keen to get involved and and, and sort of, you know, put their put their, put their money in, into this uh, into this system. But it just still feels incredibly slow. And I think, you know, the, and, and so one of the problems was that there was um, there was an, there was an interruption in these in these in the, in the process of holding these bid windows. So there had been a, a sort of an incredible kind of a growth in South African uh, domestic renewable capacity, essentially, in terms of the sort of the supply chain and things like that. And then these 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 kind of rounds ended, um, and that supply chain sort of slightly withered away to an extent. And and obviously they're trying to get that back now, but. It's a question about you know what to what extent can people believe in the future and 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 how how much the government is going to go through these plans. So it's got to be said that these are positive steps, but uh, you know obviously we're going to need some uh, some some actual sort of tangible uh, statements and, and and kind of commitments from the from the government to go through with them. Is the feed-in tariff for solar already distributed? Solar already confirmed? Is that is is that already? Gone through. So, so, so the government, so the, the president uh, gave a speech uh, this week and said that they would introduce feed-in tariffs. I mean, uh, so I think that there's, you know, that's that, you know, so one of the questions is going to be to what extent, um, you know, what 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 will ESCOM pay for 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 power produced by people from their from their rooftops? Will there be, you know, for instance, something like a tax credit would be a great way to, uh, you know, you know stimulate investment and, and 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 industry in this in this sector wouldn't it i mean it's a it's a very sunny place you could you could see a real potential for people to have um you know solar panels on their roofs why not and then and then be able to sell the excess back to the grid that would be fantastic which it's it's been extraordinary that it's not happened you know up until this point but it's it's taken a long time and i, I think uh, but it's a really interesting idea isn't it i think 
I, I saw somewhere that something like you know the the the, sort of the 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 pace of change at which you know once you uh, once you kind of allow this kind of development to go ahead really accelerates. So it could be significant. Seems about the ruling party have been in power since uh, since apartheid fell. So what over twenty years ago, mm. and, and and during that time we've had what, extraordinarily high unemployment and and power outages. I mean, would, uh, how bad are the opposition that? that, that <laughs> That they're still in power after all this time. I mean, I, I think. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's. It's, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think. I suppose you know the the ANC. You know, obviously has that sort of. Uh, it's that sort of children of the revolution sort of a thing, doesn't it? Where you know clearly the ANC, uh, you know, during apartheid spoke for you know the black majority who were obviously incredibly oppressed. And so now there's a kind of a feeling of uh, you know who can who can rise up and sort of challenge that. So. The the DA, uh, you know, they're still seen, for want of a better phrase, to be a bit white. Um, you know, so there is there is a, a sort of a continued sort of a racial aspect to it. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the economic freedom fighters who are uh, much keener on things like uh, expropriation, uh, you know, seizing controls of the means of production, that sort of thing. So in terms of sort of... Uh, viable political alternatives uh there is a shortage so but i think as a result of that the uh, you know the problems kind of play out within the the anc so you have sort of factions vying for control and for power um and and obviously there are you know massive differences between you know different different people in the anc so obviously uh jacob zuma who uh, fell from power in a an incredibly uh toxic way you know links to corruption to state capture to all of the problems really that uh, kind of you know have come to, to to typify south africa's challenges was you know the the was within the anc and you know there, there is still a faction that would uh, that is pro zuma so it's uh, it's it's a complicated uh, you know a, a political tangle to try and tease out and it's got to be said, it, it doesn't look like there's going to be uh, any any change, at least in the short term. I mean, I think you know the, the you know the process of democracy is going to be slow. It's it's coming. Obviously, you know, cities are you know moving away. They're kind of you know breaking away from the ANC. So there is there is there are, there are signs of progress. But uh, I think uh, for the time being, it looks like the ANC is uh, not going anywhere fast. But let's let's hope that the their power policy plans are, are, are a little bit different. I think that's probably all the time we've got uh, for today. So thank you, Damon. Thank you, Hamish. Uh, it's it's been a bit of bit of a rough ride this episode. I've had a, a number of technical problems, but I'm sure that you, the listener, will uh, will not notice any of them. So thank you. I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.